the adventure with the Thunderbirds. And it's not the one as advertised in the TV Times. But it's just as good. Just in case you were wondering, right at the very start, we were hearing Keith Martin, a continuity announcer at London Weekend Television, introducing Give or Take a Million on the 12th of December 1981. And it wasn't the episode billed in the TV Times. I'm Ros Connors. I do hope you're well. And thank you for joining me today for another Fanderson podcast. With the 40th anniversary of Fanderson being uh, this August, what better way than to celebrate it than to join up with a couple of fans? And what we thought we'd do, a different approach to the usual podcast we're going to have a look at a series and an episode in particular we've chosen one of jerry and sylvia anderson's most popular shows it's thunderbirds and we picked an episode of it one of my favorite ones end of the road and joining me now to discuss this episode from london Kirsty Brown for the first time here on the podcast. Welcome, Kirsty. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Lovely to have you here. And I think this is going to be great because to have some female in, input into the podcast as well. And uh, co-editor of Fab Magazine, you've been here before, Ian Fryer, all the way from the Leeds uh, Bradford border. Welcome back. Hello, everyone. Great stuff. So uh, Thunderbirds, end of the road. Uh, have we sat and watched it this morning to sort of refresh our knowledge of it, Kirsty? No, uh, <laughs> actually, I haven't. But it, it is one that I do remember quite cleanly. Um, I think mostly just due to the great character, like moments we see. Because mm. really, within Thunderbirds, you don't really see a lot of the characters, unless it was like Penelope, Brains, and Parker, and Jeff as well. It was actually kind of nice to see that a little bit from the brothers and Alan. Alan, we'll get we'll get into that. <laughs> but I do I do remember it being quite a unique and quite a good episode. It really does stand out from some of the other episodes. Well, I've got to say it's one of my favourites as well. A lot seems to happen into it, and I think it's one of the most nail-biting rescues. I mean, it is a cliffhanger. One can call it a cliffhanger. Hey. Would you agree with that, Ian? I absolutely would. It is quite interesting, though, that International Rescue aren't called in until almost exactly half an hour into the episode. There is so much going on in this that the rescue is it's not an afterthought, but the rescue comes very late in the day. Inversion of the normal sort of series format. Yeah. Now, partly the reason because of this and uh, because I've been doing, as I've been saying off mic, quite a bit of research into this. End of the Road occurred around the midpoint of the series where the it swapped from being a half hour um, series to becoming an hour series. And a lot of these scripts had to be radically revamped, rewritten and new material added to uh, carry it to a 50 minute slot you know which would fill up an hour and this episode end of the road there is the cover of the script now i'd love to see the pages of it but the cover of the script actually featured in one of the previous editions of fab magazine Ian, and um it has on the front cover written on it end of the road um by dennis spooner and then it's got underneath our script so it looks like it's been revamped and bumped up and i do happen to know this was one of the ones that was altered before it went before the cameras so it was actually filmed as an hour but with a radically altered script yes which works so well i mean you it, uh, there are some episodes where you can kind of tell they've had to shoe on other things in there and they've had to add an add an extra layer of difficulty to the rescue to sort of pad it out but Everything just slots into place perfectly here. Dennis Spooner was such a good writer. There aren't a lot of dud episodes in the 
the short history of Thunderbirds, but Dennis Spooner really did some of the best work in the series, I thought. I always found his scripts were very humorous. They were far more humorous than Alan Fennell's, which he always played as sort of like straight adventure. Whereas Dennis Spooner, he, he tended to put a lot of more fun and humour comedy into some of those scripts. He did that with Stingray quite a lot. Yeah. And Kirsty, you've been talking about characters. And I think with um, suddenly having this 50 minute format, this is, this is what has allowed room here for the characters to develop that much more yeah it, it definitely did um compared to like some of the other episodes i think city of fire was one that originally was probably one of the first one of meant to be 30 minute episodes yeah and it does feel like they've sh- sh- jammed things in there and you don't quite get a look on the characters whereas end of the road things just seem to be very smooth one of my favorite scenes is obviously once Halsman and tintin are on that random boat thing never quite understood mm-hmm. that um you know you've got the brothers teasing alan and it's just it's great because that is something that siblings will do you will tease them especially your babies my baby brother will absolutely test to this as will the dog because he's the definite baby of the family now but you do and it, it, you don't see that as much in the Thunderbirds TV series, um, in this, the 60s version anyway, which I think is a bit of a shame. So something like that, you just like, yes, they are brothers, and it just seems to work really well. I mean, I don't dig Alan as a character. I thought he was a really entitled brat in an adult's body that honestly deserved to be a slapped and taken down a couple of pegs of reality. But he's not the worst person in this episode in terms of character. It's but no, it is really good and definitely one of the more memorable ones. I can understand why it's such a favourite because I, I don't get a lot of people saying, oh, City Fire is my favourite one. You know, it's usually Trapped in the Sky, End mm. of the Road, Terror in New York City, things where you really get to see the brothers and their personalities and their actual characters really stand out. Yeah, to talk about Alan... Um... I did make a note that what a, what a fantasy figure he was, sort of a boy's fantasy figure. He's an astronaut. He's a racing driver. He's a lover. Or he wants to be. <laughs> he's a moron. Oh, That's yeah. He <laughs> yeah, well. He's an absolute moron. <laughs> weren't we all at that age? Whatever age he's supposed to be. Yeah, I, I think that's the biggest problem with what I always found to take away from Alan is um, I think he's meant to be in his early 20s. I mean, the age of the brothers are, are never well known, but they must be adults if they've, you know, gone through college or university. Yeah. And, you know, I think you have legally, because he's meant to be what, an F1 driver, isn't he? Always taken part like in like, the, yeah. the mm. version of F1. You do legally have to be an adult for obvious reasons. To be Sorry, fair to the brothers, to be, be fair though to the brothers, all all of them are bachelors though, Kirsty, aren't they? All of them are bachelors. So you know what kind of a situation are we going to end up in living on a remote island? They're all going to be fighting over Tintin. How do they I go mean, about meeting? I don't other, think they uh, did though. They didn't yeah. though. I mean, I always felt like out of all the brothers, Alan treated Tintin kind of disrespectfully while the others just treated her like she was her own person you don't really realize but until you like you go into like the history all the written like merchandise and stuff right for the show Stingray was worse for this but like Tintin herself is a great you know she's got a master's in engineering she's got a few other degrees under her belt but all we ever seem to her to do is be uh Alan's somewhat uh, somewhat love interest but mm. he doesn't treat her correctly every time she somewhat fancies somebody else or she finds another man attractive oh my god that that just calls drama and you're just like she's allowed to find other men attractive Alan it's human nature you do likely exactly the same with Lady Penelope and she's got a thing for your dad what on earth you got grandma so, helping things along in the end of the road as well you feel that grandma tracy is trying to manipulate things when she says well alan is a mighty fine looking young boy i know <laughs> you, i always love that because i always felt like to reply and she's just like yeah 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 thanks and in like my head canon she's just a bit uncomfortable i've had situations of that before where i'm just like yes 
you are stating fact. Do not go down this road. I think you're going down. So I always found this with the, the Jerry's series. When it comes to the female characters, we don't get as much as we do with the men. And it's a shame. I mean, I love the series still regardless, but I can acknowledge, you know what, mm. not the best characters. Um, and like I said, when I go back to like Tintin being, you know, quite an intelligent woman who knows what she's doing, because obviously she's usually in the Brains lab helping him. And I think um, in Terra New York City, she's actually going to be helping Brains, you know, reconstruct, although she ends up bringing him tea, where I'm like, surely you should be getting your hands in there, girl. You've got a degree. Use it. Mm, there are so other episodes never... where we see her doing more. I mean, I, I'm very sort of proud of Tintin when you see her going on the rescue mission in Sun Probe, for example, and risking her life, you know, and she was uh, busting a gut to get out to Scott to apply bandages and first aid uh, when he crashed Thunderbird 1 in The Uninvited. So she does get her hands dirty from time to time. Yeah, but it's still... Maybe not as much as like as Lady Penelope does, and it's almost a shame that you they didn't really like lean into the fact that because when we we first of all the characters from the family itself, the first person we do get to know a bit more from the first ever episode is Tintin, and as Jess says, you know she's done this whole done she's got a master, she's travelled around the world, probably doing various jobs like probably various engineering jobs. But we never got to really see that mm. in the show. Mm. We've gone a bit of a tangent here. Yes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, Ian, would would you agree with what's being said here? I mean, from a, from a guy's point of view, where do you see where do you see this? Well, well, to an extent, it pains me to say this because overanalyzing popular culture has practically become a second job for me. But it does. But but as adults, we have to limit how much we um, we overanalyze the whole situation on Tracy mm. Island because. It's a science fiction analogy to the Cartwright brothers on the Ponderosa Ranch mm. in um, in uh, Bonanza. Um, and, of course, as adults, we all wonder, well, what do those boys all get up to all stuck on a, on a remote Pacific island all day? Mm. Um, and we can only assume that they, uh, you know, that they have some time off and can go off to the mainland somewhere. But um, I, Alan's an interesting character because... It becomes a lot more central to the series as it goes along, especially when you get to the films. And I don't know anybody whose uh, favourite character is Alan. But yeah, the I know writers one person. I know one person. Oh, yeah. One person, she says that's her favourite character. Everybody else, no. <laughs> no, everybody else loves Scott. And poor old Scott seems to get short shrift plot-wise. Yeah. I mean... Probably better than like Virgil or Gordon. Like Virgil and Gordon, you Gordon especially, you barely you, there is like no real centre episodes on him. Virgil, we get a little bit in Terra New York City. John, we one episode. Yeah. <laughs> oh, John. Oh, John. But like I will say, like the despite everything, I feel like um at least the voice actor, which name escapes me now. But you but know, for Alan. Yeah, no, for John, you know, you when at least yeah. John did appear, you know, the voice actor, bless his heart with the script, did his best to really give John's personality. Yeah. Probably why John's actually really my secret favourite character. And he, and he does it, look like Adam Faith. He does, yes. yes. <laughs> that does help a little bit. Yeah. But, um, like, Scott used to be my favourite character, and he still is. Um, but, like, when I when the series, like, started being re-shown re on BBC Two during um, the early 2000s, and I got back into watching it, I was just like, yeah, John's such a guck, awesome guy. But, yeah, I've, I've only known one person who says that Alan, Alan is their favourite character. Um, bless her heart. Yeah. And yeah. by the time we get to the Thunderbirds films and the live action film and then the TV series and then the Thunderbirds I Go TV series, Alan's taking over. Alan's um, like the main character. Why are you for goodness sake? So much for Thunderbirds are go. Um there's definitely more more episodes where the all the brothers get more of a plot. Yeah. I think Thunderbirds are go, I think they the two thousand and four film definitely and as much as I loathe that film, but they did get Penelope Parker right, you know, 
I'll give them that. But we've got to talk about the love interest, the other love interest for um, Tintin here, which, of course, is the the character that's going to be rescued. And, of course, the original half-hour story probably will have just been about the rescue because that's what the series was about. But, of course, now with the added half-hour, we've got this extra backstory of a love interest for Tintin. Um, Kirsty, I don't think you're a big fan of Eddie Hausman either. I hate Eddie Hausman in so many ways. Uh, number one, you just randomly turn up to... An, I, I mean, I don't understand... Flying and stuff, like, there are regulations, flight plans. You just turn oh, up... Oh, it's the future. It's just like, it's just like no, driving no, 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 to no, the no, shops. No, no, no. It would be like... <laughs> someone one of my friends randomly turning up at my parents house while i'm visiting and expecting them to be taken care of like i'm oh, sorry yeah. that is like no phone call no contacting her like clearly they had a part like clearly yeah they, they they clearly they dated in the past eddie and tintin but it's just how he just turns up and just expects to pick up where he left off i'm like no phone call no text message no email no letters houseman houseman mm. What do you think I am? Why would Tintin and I just be like, no, go on, clear off. Like, just, just to randomly turn up to what eventually is not even like Tintin's island, but technically her dad is hired by Jeff. So you've turned up to your dad's boss's house where you are currently staying and you just expect to pick up where we, we left off 10, 15 years. And then, of course, when he clears off, because understandably, you know, mm. he clears because there's an issue with his business because I think there was some slightly shady stuff that him and his him and his partner did because obviously there's a bit like, you know, we promised this contract, you know, we get it done faster than an A1, I'm thinking, without knowing the terrain, without knowing the local weather. Mm, something oh, shady's masses, going on. I've got masses to say on that. We'll come oh, back to that it. one. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, so put a, we'll put a pin in that one. Yeah. And then he just like, then he clears off without even saying goodbye or apologizing. How yeah. many times has he done this in the past? Because that is, that is a flat red flag there. That's red flag number two, where he then just randomly clears off because, oh, his business. And I'm thinking, you've done this in the past because, like, otherwise, you know, because Tintin's just absolutely heartbroken i'm thinking he's done this in the past multiple times girl mm. he's not worth it he had some pretty bad news from the road camp Tintin. and he couldn't even wait to say goodbye well, i guess his company means a great deal to him Tintin. he'll write to you well that finishes eddie as far as Tintin is concerned Lucky we didn't have a call while he was here, wasn't it, Father? Yes. Yes, it was, Virgil. I wonder what sort of trouble they've uh, got on that road. Now, it, it would be worth mentioning at this point that Tintin has a framed photograph of Eddie Hausman, so obviously he means quite a lot to her. I think Honey, he brought it along so in the plane. <laughs> I mean, I don't think he's wrong. I think Ian's right. Anyway... Let's go back to the pin about Ian, uh, Ian said about the business practices. Go on, Ian. Well, because, like, well yeah. I mean, uh, several things occurred to me. Uh, one is that would you, even if the road got built, would you actually want to travel on that road to that mountain range, which is in constant danger of rockfall? Clearly, these mountains are made of jelly or something, <laughs> and they are constantly waiting to fall on any fool or to drive down that road. <laughs> When we you say know, that, it's not exactly going to have any I mean, motorway services there either. No, I mean, we say that though, because obviously we're based in the UK, but like, obviously, this, obviously, where they are is um, not a Western country. Mm. They don't, never did mention which country he was building this road through, did they? In the episode, they never oh. did, but interestingly, no. there, is a, there is a Chinese guy, isn't there, in the road gang? I don't ah, mean you. Now, I, don't mean I you found that interesting, yeah, because I thought that was like a really progressive move because mm. there is a random Chinese guy, and the fact that he's Chinese doesn't make any difference. There yeah. are just Chinese people in the world, and that's brilliant. That's that, that was pretty thing yeah. that Anderson series do right down the line. You know, he's he's not playing the yellow peril, which a lot of series were still using that stereotype then. You know, you watch an episode of The Saints, you will find a lot of you know if Bert mm. was busy that week. You will find a lot of Western actors made up to look not very convincingly Chinese. <laughs> not something that's going to happen in Thunderbirds, fair enough. 
but um, but you know, it's it didn't matter that he was Chinese. Uh, it's just a nice bit of representation. Yeah, exactly. Diversity certainly was there in quite a lot of the Jerry Anderson series. You know, even mm. if the even if the black or ethnic characters were there in the background, they were just there doing their jobs, which of course is what real life is all about. We don't need it in our face, which is kind of the way it's gone today. It was. It's always. Um, I may have to disagree with that one, um, just because you say in our face, but. We are obviously from a country where it is mostly white people, but it is mm. very arrogant to presume that we are just the standards. A lot of media just represents as white is is, is the nat is natural. That is the first thing you think of, and it's not actually true. Like there is no in real life, there is no generic standard person that we mm. can all picture. That's just not possible. So, especially in Western media, where we are becoming more multicultural, mostly due to very sordid history from our ancestors, it must be more nice for people who haven't, who have always seen in television, even though they live in this country, they are born in this country, but they're not white, mm. to see other characters and go, yes, finally, I am represented. I am now seen as existing and, I, and there's no more of this basic standard which doesn't exist in real life there is no mm. basic standard of a human being so it's not in our faces at all it's just we're actually now finally seeing real life in our media which is which is nicer for people who don't see that anyway going back we're on a massive tangent here going back to ian's point of the roads um you say that but there are loads of different countries where there are dangerous roads but it's the only road we've got you were kind of hoping that Houseman and his partner, however, would be doing something about the, you know, the land, the possible landslides. Clearly not. That's questionable no. in itself. <laughs> yeah. And um, I've got skin in this game, I have to say, because behind me, about 200 yards behind me, is a major road building project. And it's at least a year behind schedule. Oh, no, it's terrible. We're gonna we're gonna have these terrible penalties, and we'll we're at, we'll be finished if we don't finish this on time. When did anybody ever hear of a major road building project that finished on time? Actually, no, they, they always do tend finish, to finish late. On, no, a lot of major roads turn up easy because they get bonuses. Mm. Yeah, well, but the people doing hours certainly won't be getting any bonuses. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, they found loads of. Um, anti-cabling and things and it's really delayed things and it's uh, all gone wrong at the planning stage but at least they didn't dynamite all the local houses to put the road through which is the way which of is, the world in thunderbirds isn't Housman it would have done. i do oh, like the were. road building um, method though of having that one machine that sort of lays the road paints the lines and puts the the cat's eyes in and it, it all just comes out the back of it. And that's pretty that neat, is, isn't it? That is, that is ingenious. And that saves so much time on like road working. But also, why did they never do anything about the possibility of landslides? You see it all over the world. Road companies will put something up to try mm. and lessen the damage. Honestly, I'm beginning to question the practices of Eddie and his, and his yeah. partner because it's like, what were you guys doing? It's a. I've had a charmingly childlike concept that making a road is like laying a rug, and you can just you just have it trailing behind you, and that's it. You just you should lay it on top of the ground, and that's fine. That'll do. That's yeah. what dodgy builders who turn up at your mum's house do when they're doing their drive. You know, it's just a little layer of uh, tarmac, and then they clear off. Yes, and explosives do feature quite heavily, or pneumatic charges, whatever they call them there. Oh, to yeah. uh, and if there's a rock fall or rock formation or tree formation in front, just shoot it. I do like the way that uh, when we reach the Italian job bit, where the explosive truck is teetering on the edge, Eddie's saying, "Oh, and even worse, there's all these neutronic charges. I'll be blown to bits." No. The truck falling off the cliff will kill you. Mm. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I think the Italian job stole that idea from Thunderbirds because I remember seeing Thunderbirds first and I think Thunderbirds was made before the Italian job. So I yeah, I reckon was. that 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 movie stole that idea from Well to be honest, the Thunderbirds, Thunderbirds. Uh, storyline stole from so many other sources. <laughs> I think that's fair enough.
I loved how we've gone on to such tangent. You said there was a second point about Eddie and his business practices, Ian, because you said that was the first point. Oh, crikey, I'll have to try and remember now. We've gone for such a tangent. <laughs> um, I'd say, though, I do rather like uh, Bob Grace. Bob, Bob Gray. Bob Gray. I really like him. And it's sort of the perfect synthesis of mm. a puppet that really suits the character of this worried businessman and David Graham's voice for it, which is just absolutely perfect. It isn't a stock David Graham voice. No. Uh, you know, some of his voices you will hear him uh, do elsewhere. It's like, oh, his, uh, his mathematic voice. He does exactly the same voice when he plays a barman in a Doctor Who episode. Uh, whereas this is sort of a unique voice. And I genuinely had to look it up. I obviously knew it wasn't, you know, some of the actors. Yeah. But... At least Bob Gray is the one who seems to be uh, more concerned about health and safety with this project. Yeah. And yeah. Just, I, yeah, I'm left with this just, that's the main thing that was left with the episode afterwards is that, is Bob Gray saying, Eddie, a company's not worth it, Eddie. <laughs> uh, that's just, just wonderfully just adds tension to it. And he genuinely sounds worried for his mates. Hello, Eddie. Eddie, can you hear me? No word for half an hour. You'd better try again. Eddie. Eddie, this is Bob. Call in. Call in. No good. I guess we'll have to... Hi, Bob. This is Eddie. I've planted the charges. Eddie! Then get out of there! That peak's cracking up! There'll be a landslide any minute! I guess I'd better fire the charges now. You'll be too close! Get away from there, you kill yourself! The company isn't worth it! Eddie! Eddie, can you hear me? He cut off! He cut off! If the roles were reversed, would Eddie say exactly the same thing? Because I don't think Eddie would. No, I, think I don't that's think he would. another reason why nobody likes Eddie Houseman. Because Bob yeah. is... It's quite unusual to see, because you see in a lot of the shows when it comes to like the businessmen side, they don't really care about like mm. the human cost. So it was really nice to see. It's the 40th anniversary of Fanderson and a very special podcast. I'm Roz and my guests today, Kirsty Brown from London and Ian Fryer from Bradford who we uh, know from a uh, being fab co-editor. We're talking about the Thunderbirds episode, End of the Road, various aspects of it. Some things I've certainly not thought about until uh, speaking to the pair of you. Ian, I think you wanted to add something about Dennis Spooner and humour. Oh, yes, that's right, because we got off at such interesting tangents. I just wanted to mention <laughs> that his background... Uh, Dennis Spooner's background is very much in comedy. He'd been a stand-up com comedian. Um, basically, he was a failed comedian who turned to writing. Uh, and he turned to writing through comedy. He was one of Harry Worth's script writers. You're too young, Kirsty. You won't remember Harry Worth. Dennis Spooner loved writing comedy, loved adding it to his scripts. He got, he ended up writing a lot of scripts for things like The Professionals, which are very serious and, you know, boys running around in Paul Capri's and things like that. But it wasn't really what he loved doing. And as I say, he, he was a failed comedian who liked to still explore that aspect of his uh, personality and his writing. Yeah, it certainly comes through in some of the scripts, definitely for Stingray, I've noticed, and in Thunderbirds as well, perhaps uh, more character-based episodes in, in Thunderbirds. So we're talking about this episode, which is a very muddy episode as well, very dirty episode on the side of a mountain in the pouring rain. They're building this road where the weather is absolutely atrocious. It's a sort of place I don't think I'd like to drive my car. Even, you know, even if the road is made safe and they've blown this peak away so that we don't keep getting landslides. But of course, we've got to talk about the rescue itself. Thunderbirds 1 and 2 are dispatched to the scene but of course the the word comes through from john and i don't know how john got to find out about this relationship thing because there wasn't time but because john says from thunderbird five oh i've left the name of the guy to be rescued until last and i think why is that you know how what does john know about all what's been going on on the island in the last half hour. Probably a deleted scene somewhere. <laughs> I think he must... Well, they must have told him because they're using Operation Cover-Up and there must be some signal to John as to what's going on and why he can't just uh, get on the radio 
and suddenly announce rescues and things like that. With his Thunderbirds uniform on. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So, yeah, John would have to know. Mm. Yeah. But, of course, you know, John gets so little screen time and that's all going to happen off camera. I, I swear, if we ever do Danger at Ocean Deep, I will elbow everybody out of the way because that is my favourite episode. <laughs> and that's because John's actually on a rescue. Um, I always, my like personal headcanon was, uh, I'm like, he must have a change of clothes just in case for something like this to happen. So maybe he did like, you know, one of the video calls and he's in his own clothing, not the uniform. So it, it makes, and he's got like the bedroom, so it doesn't look like it's a station of any kind oh brains would have just... invented backgrounds like on zoom on zoom yeah i think there is actually there was one episode where uh john's packing up to obviously because he's he's done his stint for a month and he's swapping over with alan and it's actually in the bedroom and it looks like a generic bedroom so maybe they've got a camera there set up where like if something like that happens and that, that's my personal head canning where john's like in uniform like out of uniform filming it you know face to basically yeah. facetimed his dad to know what's going on you've sent me this signal oh yeah tintin's ex-boyfriend's turned up looking for a booty call <laughs> oh yes <laughs> so that that must be why but it, it's really nice how the way the scripts were written in those moments like that where you can join the dots in such a cohesive way that it doesn't you don't have to have it all explained to you yeah yeah because you know, it is on, on one level aimed at the parents as well as mm. at the children um, you know, this must be one of the best episodes for appealing to the widest possible audience. I mean, you know, if you want spectacular action and great big explosions, it's got that. You know, it's got a daring rescue. It's got romance. Mm. It's got everything. I, I question the romance aspect, but you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're going off topic from the uh, actual like rescue in itself because they actually get quite innovative with innovative with the um, rescue because obviously they can't bring a lot of stuff out because Eddie will go bye bye. Yeah. <laughs> so like the bit where they use Thunderbird One, and you never really—I don't think you ever saw that again—was like. Thunderbird One was physically used in a rescue and not yeah. just bringing Scott in with his setup. That was, I wish they did more like that with the other machines. Mm. Oh, there was one that they did similarly. Uh, I th Oh, what's the one where the satellite is headed towards some base and is going to blow it up? Is it Ricochet, um, is it? Oh. Ricochet. It could be Ricochet, that's right. And the, t and the wingtip of Thunderbird Two, I think, is used to, uh, to throw it off course, yes. which was a real thing. That's where it gets interesting. That was a real thing that happened. Well, uh, they in the war when flying they had the two bombs, rockets, wasn't it? flying yeah. bombs. That's right. And the the Spitfires or whatever planes they were mm, using mm. would actually do that to throw the bombs off course. And I think the writers would have known about that. Jerry certainly would have known yeah. about that. Mm. Kirsty, you mentioned about setting up the um, mobile control. This is one episode they do completely from the air. I know. And I really like that because you, you think about it, there must be situations where there's no way Thunderbird 1 could land just because either due to the political strife and the tensions are really high in certain countries or just it, the land itself is so unstable. So it was so nice to see. And the bit where they used, where he, you know, Thunderbird 1 was physically used to, you know, keep the keep mm. the actual truck itself that was such a good idea and again i think that's another reason why this is such a well-remembered episode because it did things that we didn't see in other episodes because obviously there was a bit where a lot of the time oh here comes the mole out comes the mole yeah. mm, so yeah. it, that was such a great way of doing it and i think did they spur of the moment wasn't it just like a spur of the moment idea you know, use the nose cone of Thunderbird 1 to prop the explosives yeah. tractor while Thunderbird 2 grabs it with these absolutely enormous size grabs. What are we going to do, Scott? We'll have to go in closer if we're going to make contact with the grabs. Now, we've got to think of a way of stabilizing that tractor while the grabs are attached. Scott, couldn't they fix a line that would hold it steady? No, Virgil, I'm sure that's not possible. The ground near the tractor is so badly cracked that even a small increase in weight to tip that balance. Hey, wait. I've got an idea. Yeah, now I have a problem with the scale of that whole scene uh, because that explosives truck 
wouldn't have fitted in a Thunderbird 2 pod. Now, if this works, Virgil, come straight in and grab him. Now, the whole point of Thunderbird 2 is it's enormous. Mm. Everything we see coming out of that pod is dwarfed. And it's the scale just doesn't work. I mean, Thunderbird 2 really isn't any bigger than Thunderbird 1 in that scene. But I don't see how else they could have filmed it. I think I think a, 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 a to scale Thunderbird two would have been too unwieldy. I think when um, you're a kid though, you just don't care, do you? You're just so caught up in the moment absolutely. with it and the action and the excitement of, you know, we've got to get this guy away from the edge of this cliff, and they pick the tractor up and carry it off. And of course, we get a further twist come up that it's too heavy for the grabs. Okay, Virgil, come in now. I'll take the strain. FAB, coming in now. Those spear things that come out of Thunderbird, I have to say, are suspiciously useful mm. for that specific purpose. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of a lot of the rescues ended up having stuff like that. So, yeah. But it was fun. I do remember the fact that Houseman had to jump out the vehicle. I just think, what exactly did International Rescue do? Uh, but I do think um, when there are cars and machines in that sort of precarious way and you've got firefighters... And rescue teams i think a lot of the time people are just told to just jump so i actually mm. think that is quite realistic does seem like you've gone through all that effort what for the person's just jumped out the vehicle but then you really well i i'm, I'm not oh no he couldn't have jumped out before because he would no have, no uh, he would have died he would have, he would have, he would have, yeah. he would have died way before yeah um but the other thing which and i think it's it is interesting and i'm not the first person to have spotted this but when eddie jumps out and you see the puppet rolling about a bit. It's Scott. Mm. It's I spotted that this morning watching it, because yeah. only because someone had mentioned it, I think, in one of the Fanderson forums and said, oh, it's yeah. Scott that rolls. And, of course, if you freeze frame it now, which, of course, you can, can't you, to yeah. your heart's content? One yes, it's blue Scott. Rain detail. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I was just looking at the old, uh, my decades-old DVDs, and you can tell on that as well. Mm. A 425 line TV, no way would you have spotted that. Well, not no. in the instant, no, no. But You wouldn't have. I still but think, I think it's it does one show of the best that rescues. sequence is, um, was filmed after the rest of the episode mm. um, to, to, to bulk it up to our length. And presumably the, uh, the Eddie puppet was busy doing something else. Well, well, he couldn't do any deal with his agents it's, or something. It's quite possible that the the rolling shot in the in the mud could possibly have been a pickup that was added yeah. in later just, just to add extra suspense to it. But I, I, I was sort of thinking, oh, no, no, you've got to rescue the tractor. It's such a lovely vehicle. It's such a lovely design. You've got to set it down on solid ground. And, of course, we watch it completely decimated don't we in spectacular style Kaboom, yeah. all bits of it got, got to have off. a big explosion at the end yeah <laughs> absolutely it's not a thunderbirds but, episode without a big explosion yeah but uh, and i'm sure that you guys have got notes of this as well it does turn up again um let's have a look it's um well, the road building machine turns up again slap mm. a bit of yellow paint on it and that's back in Atlantic inferno um, it becomes a firefighting looking security hazard. The, uh, this mm. is the, Eddie's um, explosive truck. And the front section uh, was in Sun Probe. Well, yes, and I can explain that for you as well because Sun Probe, being a half hour episode, um, originally didn't have the Thunderbird 2 section of the rescue in it. The Mount Arkan sequences were added later and were filmed after End of the Road. So the explosives tractor that was created for End of the Road was resprayed and became the transmitter truck used in the new extra bit of backstory section of Sun Probe, which was Sun Probe's addition was everything to do with Brayman, everything to do with the mission that you see on the television screen and everything to do with the trip to Mount Arkan and the other radio beam that they fire out to rescue Thunderbird 3. Yeah. But that does mean that that lovely model of the explosive truck didn't actually get blown up. It didn't. It lived to fight another day. It did. Or fight another fire. 
Which is nice to know, isn't it? <laughs> yes. And the extra scenes that they did for this episode are very uh, cost-effective because they're all on Tracy Island. They all use existing sets. Yeah. Um, and it should, couldn't have been that difficult to set up the most boat shots and the, uh, and the rear projection for that. So, you know, it's very... Uh, you know, it's, it's a very cost-effective way of adding mm. sequences. Well, well like third season uh, Star Trek, where everything has to happen on the Enterprise. What you've got to remember with out. End of the Road, though, Ian, is whatever was added to it was all filmed around the same time and it was completed very quickly, very rapidly, because it was mm. one of the earliest episodes to actually make it to air, whereas the first... 11 episodes apart from trapped in the sky so we've got 10 episodes that follow the only other episode to make it back into its original number episode number order was pit of peril which went out as episode two after episode two the transmission order you've got to look back at the original broadcast from 1965 to see that the other early episodes were actually added in later once the new sequences had been filmed and when people keep talking about padding for these episodes, it's not padding. It's not an extra scene here and there. They've had to go and write a subplot. There is a subplot. And many of the subplots of the half-hour episodes are a story within a story. It's not like a few extra shots of the Fire Flash, a few extra shots of the Thunderbirds. It's a story within a story. And that's really the way they had to do it. And I do believe that it was a different writer to the original writer that sometimes added the extra sequences. And this is where some of the continuity errors in those earlier episodes suddenly happened, where we, we've had instances like Grandma turning up in the episodes before she was actually introduced. And yeah. um, little things like that occurred. End of the Road sort of fell just after they'd switched to the hour format. So it was really a case of extending the script yeah, and then taking it onto the floor. So the backstory there almost certainly was the, the island stuff and, and the extra character development. If we take Terror in New York City, the extra backstory for that added was the shooting down of Thunderbird 2 was everything to do with the Sentinel. Because the original script, Terry, New York City, it's just about the Empire State Building. You have to look at it from the inside out to see what they've done with this. I wanted to mention the music because music features very heavily in this episode. And having worked on the CD, the Fordis Fanderson CD for this, you know, I got to listen to a lot of the music, a lot of the cues that Barry Gray provided. And End of the Road is a scored episode. It was scored on Friday, the 7th of May, 1965 at uh, CTS Studios in Wembley. I've got to say it's one of my favourite scores of the whole the whole series. I don't know about how you feel about it. I have a thing about Barry Gray's music, but I think the earlier series uh, leading up to Thunderbirds lean on the music to add scale because the visuals aren't quite there yet. When you think of something like Fireball XL5, without Barry's orchestral score, will be considerably lessened. By the time you get to Thunderbirds, the visuals have caught up mm. with the music. And so you really do get this epic scale to everything. And I think they tried to pull back a bit on that with Captain Scarlet, where certainly for the earlier episodes, the score is much more minimal. Mm. And I think they added some more orchestral bits later on because they maybe decided that wasn't working. Kirsty, how do you how does music feature for you in 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 Thunderbirds and in, in this episode in particular? Because the so, the rescue certainly the, the nail biting bit it's all music and it's looped over and over and it's quite exciting. So I'm I'm not the biggest like uh, knowledgeable about soundtracks, but from what I gather from like I'm watching like critics online who do know these details. It tends to be a soundtrack should, you know, enhance the film. It shouldn't drown out the visuals. Mm. Um, it should always enhance it. And when you think an end of the road, the music is such a great, and the Thunderbirds was such always a great way of showing that there was such a good balance between the music and what you're actually watching. 
like coinciding so neatly so end of the road without you actually like sitting down and just listening to the soundtrack and not watching it you it just blends in nicely it's so like mm. you don't know it's there but it's there because it enhances it mm. so it's something you don't really think of until you start like really looking into it but like yeah it's a, it must be a very good soundtrack i just it's just one of those where I think if I was just watching End of the Road without the music, I'd probably be a bit disappointed. So it, it's, I mean, Barry's great music was always amazing. <laughs> he could, he could write for any any particular moment, couldn't he? Because if you've got, say, yeah. the love theme that you've got in End of the Road, that's there. The rousing Thunderbirds launch sequences where you've got a, a whole new score in this episode just for the launch sequences and then you've got the rescue itself with only one little bit of it right near the end is actually a reuse from perils of penelope which is the the actual shot of the of the tractor um breaking apart on the ground the, otherwise it's a an entire score that was done for this episode with the episode completed what would have happened is the film would have been taken to cts studios at wembley projected on a screen and barry would have conducted the orchestra while watching the film and and creating music for the moment ian what do you think of that i mean i think it's a fantastic way that that barry worked doesn't like yeah. most film soundtracks do that though they'll have the composers compose the music as they're watching the scenes yeah but for tv a lot of series would just have a generic score they would use for every episode. Mm. Some surprisingly big series like The Persuaders, which was a hugely expensive series, but they just had a few basic scores or used library music sometimes. So yeah, Thunderbird's relation to music is pretty unique. Mm. So it's an era in which library music was used extensively by a lot of TV series. Mm. Um, the the early episodes of the Avengers, uh, the early uh, Diana Rigg episodes of the Avengers are a very good example because the uh, ABC came on in America to, to back the series. And the first thing they said is, you need more music because they only had two or three stock themes they used for everything. Mm. And it really shows when you rewatch the series. You compare it to Avengers something like Space Patrol as well, where you just had all these weird noises that Roberta Lee yeah. created. And I've recently watched the Blu-rays of Space Patrol and I thought, Oh, they never really did any music for this, and I. No, but I, I like that. That's. I think that gives that a really unique flavour because yeah. they couldn't have afforded uh, anything like a big orchestral score. It's the I same in the every episode, isn't it? it? It's the F. same in every Frank episode. Judd, that's the guy. F. C. Judd. Do you know it's on the credits? It says electronics by F. C. Judd. That's the score. Mm. That's not that's not making the lights work on the set. That's the score they're referring but that, to. But every episode is Judd the same, a... isn't it? Every episode is the same. Whereas in say Thunderbird, Stingray, Captain Scarlet, Joe ninety, you've got these. If you're in Scotland, you'll have a Scottish theme. I know it's a little bit cliched, but with say for Desperate Intruder in Thunderbirds, you've yeah. got that lovely Middle Eastern mix of music and um, another one which is quite distinctive is pit of peril with this sort of like marching machine music which gets used yes. again in path of destruction yeah and yeah that's a nice thing about pit of peril which is an episode which i think is a lot of people's least favorite thunderbirds episodes because oh, it's no, I, just... I think security hazard is everybody's least favorite <laughs> episode for an obvious reason yeah but you know it's um it's that uh, the episode we're actually talking about uh, is the, is like the opposite of Pit of Peril. Uh, Pit of Peril is what Thunderbirds could have been and possibly would have been had it remained a half an hour, which is a very basic, here's this week's rescue, and, and they do it, it yeah. and they go home, and that's it. And um, and the nice thing about the hour episodes is that they have, they give the characterization room mm, to breathe. Absolutely. And it took me a bit to get used to Captain Scarlet and the Mistrons um, when I first got the chance to see some episodes of that back in the old days, back in the 1980s, when... ITV put some episodes on and did the rounds because the plots, oh, where's the rest of it? The plots were just over in 25 minutes and gone. That and was always I the really... nice thing about Thunderbirds. I've got to say, if I cast my mind back to when I was young, watching it in LWT land, London Weekend Television used to show Thunderbirds very, very frequently throughout the 70s. And whilst I enjoyed Captain Scarlet, Joe 90, Stingray, they were 
they, they were over before they'd started kind of thing you get into them and then they're gone but thunderbirds yeah. it lasted longer and i think that's why i liked it more it, it just was on the screen longer and one could savor it for longer yeah and it did more with the time it used the time intelligently um, so you you really did get interested in the characters. You know, they didn't just add more explosions and and model shots, which is Jerry's reputation, unfortunately, from uh, people who aren't invested in the series like we are. That you know that he didn't care about plot and characters. Let's just have some great big spaceships and explosions, and that really wasn't what happened on Thunderbirds. It wasn't what happened on UFO when they had the extra time to use and the first series of Space 1999. The, the extra time was used to give the series more depth mm. and, and a broader appeal. Yeah. Kirsty, when did you first see Thunderbirds? I get the feeling you're considerably younger than uh, myself, you know, being hun- uh, hundreds and hundreds of years old like Zelda. <laughs> oh, no, no, not hundreds. So um, when the resurgence in the early 90s, that's when I watched Thunderbirds. And I think I kind of, like, forgot about it but like there was a vhs tape that was labeled my vhs tape that had like a film and several random episodes of tv series and the one episode i think i had two thunderbird series one was the imposters such a great episode and the other one was terror new york city but it got cut off before i could see the end so i'd never seen the end until i got the dvd collection But, um, yeah, so I watched it when they had the massive resurgence in the 90s. I think that was due to the two guys who did the um, The West End. The Theatre Project, yeah. Yeah. And obviously, when they set it off, there was that bit about, oh, you can see the wires. But when you look back, you can't see the wires. You you can in some episodes, like in some scenes, but it's very very um but don't brief find, but no it was you don't you yeah, find we, like me that when you get involved in the story you get involved in the characters you the wires yes. you become oblivious to the wires because you're just so involved with the program yeah. i mean well, the, the way they about- were shot were good the way yeah. jerry shot them he shot them like sorry in <laughs> oh no carry <laughs> sorry. on this is the perils of zoom you carry on because i don't want to talk over you no, no, no. So, like the way Jerry shot, and he was always because obviously he always wanted to actually work with actual actors. He treated the puppets like actors rather than set pieces, and I think that's sometimes the mistake you get when you look at certain children's television. They don't treat the puppets like characters. I mean, the Muppets and uh, Sesame Street are great. Like they actually treat the all the characters like actual actors so much so that when you have actual actors and celebrities that actually go on these shows they go you don't look at the person that's actually controlling them you actually look at the character you're speaking to so i think that's another reason why you don't really notice the strings is because the way they're shot the way it's all done like the scenes Mm. where they're using actual people's hands and stuff it just flows really nicely. I Just think I get more shot. annoyed if I see the, the wires on the on the model effects. I think that I, I get more frustrated yes. with that than on the, the characters. Yeah. Well, a couple of points about that. One is that um, if you weren't able to see the wires, would you have not realised they were puppets? That was why, why is that a complaint that you can see the wires? <laughs> well, that's you know? it. You know they're puppets, don't you? You know yeah. they're puppets, so you expect to see wires, but you perhaps but, uh, don't expect to see them on the on the aircraft and things. Yeah, that's right. But the other thing is that if people were originally watching this on black and white 405 line TV, when you were lucky to see the puppets, never mind the wires. <laughs> Yes, and of course we got these wonderful uh, DVD sets now, and, and and the Blu-rays, of course, are even sharper. So they're going to show up even more detail uh, today. I've got to say, I spotted something for the first time in End of the Road that I hadn't spotted before, and it's the scene with um, Eddie Hausman where he sneaks out at night, and he doesn't want his boss to uh, see him. Uh, getting aboard the explosive tractor, defying him. So he goes out in the middle of the night and as he's sort of skulking around the tractor and he's about to pull the lever to open the flap up, I thought, oh gosh, look, there's one of the one of the doors from Corridor D50 in City of Fire there with all oh. the rivets in it. You know, when the family's trapped inside, there's that, yeah. that metal door. And I thought, oh, I never spotted that before. And this is, this is the nice thing about watching them again and again. You always spot something 
something new that you've yes. not seen before? It's been nice to come to it fresh because, bear in mind, I spent my entire week writing about Kenneth Williams <laughs> for a different <laughs> project. It's been really nice to come back to come back fresh to a Thunderbirds episode, and you know, it's like enjoying it for the first time. It was so, it was so, it really was edge of the seat tension. Mm. So oh, it's not real. So, folks, then I'll start with Kirsty. For end of the road, then marks out of ten for this 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 episode it was written by dennis spooner directed by david lane uh, it was first broadcast let me tell you when it was first on it was uh the 25th of november 1965 i've got atv midlands for that date kirsty marks out of 10 for end of the road uh, this is only due to personal preference because i cannot stand house as a character i'll give it an eight out of ten just minus two points because the way that Alan had acted and I just don't like Houseman as a character. Had it been his partner, I would have been more, more understandable. Ian. But eight out of ten, such a good episode. Ian. I'm going to give it an extra one. I'm going to give it a nine because I think it really is up there with the top tier of Thunderbirds episodes up there with that mini Die Hard, which is trapped in the sky, which is a miniature version of Die Hard for me. It's up there. It's up there with that in the absolute top bracket of Thunderbirds episodes. So I'm going to give that nine out of ten. Nine out of ten. Well, that's pretty good going. It's my turn now, and uh, you know, shall I share with you today and to our dear listener as well that uh, End of the Road happens to be my favourite episode of Thunderbirds. It always oh. has been. I, you know, I, I wanted to keep that quiet really right until the end, but I'm going to give End of the Road 10 out of 10 because I don't think you can get a better rescue than the one that we see with the explosives tractor. It really is, well, I was going to say not edge of the cliff, it's edge of the sea entertainment yes. for, for that reason. The character development is very, very nice. We get to see Alan with his frowner, which of course is, as an adult is rather amusing when he's when he's um, hacked off with things and you see him sort of frowning and scowling at his brothers. It's, it's a great episode. It's got a bit of everything in it. And as I've mentioned already, it's got a great music score. I was going to mention the frowner face. It was very good use of the frowner face in that scene. That really that that stuck with me as well. Oh, Alan and his frowner face. We saw that way too much after that. <laughs> but obviously, great meme face. Just a great meme face. Yeah. Yes, but uh, of course, I don't think we ever saw Eddie Hausman ever wanting to get back with Tintin again. And I think after that departure from the island, I don't think she'd have wanted to see him again too soon. Um, you mentioned uh, the um, relationship between Alan and um, Tintin, but it's seen by Thunderbird 6. And I'd even say give or take a million as well, that that relationship was more likely to develop between Tintin and Brains. One of the most unlikely characters in the series. I think that um, if you remember Thunderbird 6, Alan kind of dismisses married life. There's a line where he says, The life I lead in international rescue is far too dangerous to ask anyone else to share it with me. Tintin's sitting there, am I a joke to you? Am I a joke to you? Honestly, she deserves better. She deserves so much better than what she got. Oh. <laughs> and she wants brains for his mind. She's got a degree, yeah, two intelligent right. people working is, together. He's the only person on the island at her level. I have to admit, like, it was, oh, what's the episode where they both go off to an archaeology dig? Like, he treats her like an equal? Uh, like, he doesn't, intruder, like, not assisted. Like, like yes, he, that's the, is that the uninvited? Desperate intruder. Desperate intruder. Yeah. Desperate intruder, yeah. So, like, he treats her like an equal and they have such a good friendship. And I'm just like, yes. Yes, I love this. Like true friendship between uh, between them, and it was so good to see. Well, that's where we have to leave it, folks, because time is against us. But I wanted to say a big thank you for uh, joining us on this podcast today for the 40th anniversary of uh, Fanderson. It's hard to believe that the club's been going this number of years. It's almost as old as Thunderbirds itself in some ways. And of course, uh, there's a you know a mixture of fans. Some of us are getting on a bit, and we've also brought in younger 
ones as well. And from the sound of it, Kirsty, you joined in around the early 90s with the BBC screenings, which, of course, was brilliant. You know, it, it re- the big resurgence of interest there and new members for the club. So, Kirsty Brown in London, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. And to Ian Fryer, co-editor of Fab Magazine, all the way up there in Bradford and from here in Basildon, thank you once again. A fantastic chat there with both Kirsty Brown and Ian Fryer. Very different views of an episode of Thunderbirds. I'm sure we can do another podcast like this again very, very soon. And uh, I'm sure that even you might like to have your say about one of the great episodes produced by Jerry and Sylvia Anderson. Well, I've been Ros Connors, and uh, however you plan to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Fanderson, maybe you intend to get online and chat to some fans, maybe you're going to sit down and watch a few of Jerry and Sylvia's shows. Whatever way you decide to do it, do stay safe, and I'll catch up with you again very, very soon. Fanderson is the world's only official appreciation society for the work of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson. With its own club magazine, exclusive merchandise and more. If you'd like more information, please see our website at fanderson.org.uk.